Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. Today's guest, Steve Stivers, who, in addition to being a congressman from Ohio, is the head this cycle of the National Republican Congressional Committee, which is in charge of helping Republicans try to keep control of the House. That's not a simple assignment, and the evening that I sat down with him in his office at NRCC headquarters, he was coming off of a day's work and had a full night ahead in strategy meetings with House Speaker Paul Ryan. As of right now, 20 Republicans have said they're retiring outright, with another 14 leaving their seats behind to run for other offices, like governor and senate. Lots of people, and certainly lots of Democrats, believe there's a wave coming. So what's it like to stand in the middle of that? And it all seems to be coming down to how people feel about President Trump, even more so than is usually the case in midterms. Stivers, at least in what he said to me, isn't as concerned as you might think. But when I asked the NRCC to share its district-by-district poll numbers on President Trump with me to use, they wouldn't. When I asked the House Democrats to, they were happy to. And when we ran our own poll numbers through a partnership we have here at Politico with a company called Morning Consult, maybe it gets at why. Just 27% of registered voters think Trump will have a positive impact on Republicans running for Congress, while 40% think he'll have a negative impact. But among Republicans, we found 44% of registered voters said they'd be more likely to vote for a candidate if Trump campaigned for that person. So hit the political homepage and check that out. You can see how they wrangled through it and more on the poll numbers involved here that are driving a lot of the thinking. We're going to start out by checking in with John Bresnahan, our congressional bureau chief, who is the best person I could think of to talk about things this week of the State of the Union and to hear what people on the Hill are really saying. First, please make sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of those ratings makes it easier for new people to find off message. So we need your help. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe, whether you're using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever else. Coming up next, a conversation with Joe Kennedy III, talking about the future of the Democratic Party that he sees coming off of being picked to do the official response to the State of the Union. Follow me on Facebook and on Twitter at Isaac Dover and email me your thoughts and suggestions at Isaac at Politico.com. Now, let's get to Brez. This is this is State of the Union number 25 for you this week? It is. <laughs> so which are the ones that stick out? Clinton's, Bill Clinton's speech after the Lewinsky scandal broke because that was a huge moment. Because in the days after that story broke, we thought he was going to resign. I mean, we were walking around the hill. I remember searching for members, trying to find somebody who would defend Clinton because everybody thought he was going to resign and he didn't. Uh, but in the immediately – in the immediate aftermath of the story come out, we – you know, it looked like he was done and then there was a sense, can he do this speech? And he did it and he – you know, he was very good. Clinton was extremely good in those uh, settings and, you know, the, the – everyone went crazy, you know, Clinton hits a home run, you know, and it looked like he would, you know – I mean, I mean so time much of it looked, is expectation setting it is, of it's the all media. of it, right? And, and just like last year with Trump, it was like, wow, can he actually string together some sentences? And it turns out, yes, he can. He was good. Uh, and he, he was, was good. good and year, it, yeah. it was a good speech. It wasn't an amazing speech. No. But because it was so far beyond what people thought, then mm. uh, he got a lot of accolades for it. No. Trump did. I think the, the, the Bush one after 9-11, the Access of Evil speech, that was a huge – Huge speech. I was actually not in the chamber for the speech, but they gave out copies of the speech right beforehand. And I remember being in Statuary Hall and we were reading it to each other and we we're like, oh my God, he's, you know, the acts of his evil. He's, you know, he's, you know, we didn't know, is he going to declare war on these countries? I mean, we really were, we weren't sure. There was the Obama and Joe Wilson, you lie moment, which was unbelievable because I was sitting in the chamber 
and we actually sit facing the members. We sit behind the president. Uh, we're looking facing down, say, looking down right. and and we weren't. We knew it came from the Republican side, but we weren't sure who it was. And everybody was freaking out, going, "Who the hell said that?" You know, it was an unbelievable moment. And you, when you're in the chamber, it's the, the reporting is really hard to do because there are the limitations on what you can do at that moment. You can't get on the phone, obviously. No, you and can't. Then, right. um, you can use email, though. Now you can. You can use electronic devices. You can't. You couldn't in the past, but you can in the House. You can't in the Senate. So it was just it was just still an unbelievable moment. I really thought after that speech, I thought they were, you know, the Democrats were just going to go crazy because it was really a shocking moment to see someone yell that in the middle of the president's address to Congress. It was really an unbelievable moment. And aside from those standout moments that are particularly crazy, what is that being in the chamber for it? I mean, everybody watches it on TV. They see it and, oh, there's the, there are the Supreme Court justices. Is this one asleep or that one? Each member, who are they talking to? Who are they sitting with? But what's the feeling like on a State of the Union? It's exciting. I mean, there is excitement. I mean, your whole government is there. I mean, your 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 congressional leadership, the Supreme Court leadership, the you know cabinet officials minus one, the president, of course. You have the media packed area members, senators. Uh, it is. I mean, I do think the ritual is important. I feel excitement about it. I do. Uh, it's like the first day of a new Congress when they elect a speaker. I mean, you know what's going to happen most of the time. You know what's happened. But these rituals are important. It's important that we do this. It's important that, you know, uh, members experience this uh, and the public sees the government functioning at least for one night in the way it's supposed to function, you know, which is the president addressing the admiring members of Congress and they treat them with respect. Let's talk about that because uh, Stivers could not name any districts that he would send President Trump to. So I think when people are going to watch the the ritual of the State of the Union – uh, which includes the sort of choreographed applause lines and standing ovations. A lot of Republicans are going to stand up and applaud for the president. His agenda is their agenda. But you know, very uh, few of them are going to want him to campaign for them, if any. No, in House members, but I can see him going into states for Senate races. I mean, you could see him going into Indiana. Or Missouri. Or, or West yeah. Virginia. I mean, you could do that. Individual House members, you'd have to be a pretty red what district, they, and those guys are not going to lose their seat. What, what do the, the House Republicans say about him when uh, the microphones are off and the cameras are off? I think there's a lot of eye rolling and head shaking. I mean, I do think that we've gotten away from a lot of members avoid the, Trump's Twitter feed because, you know, they avoid answering questions on it. Because we in the media react to it and they can't be whipsawed every five minutes on some, you know, something that Trump said. So I think what they've done and they've said, look at his agenda. His agenda is our agenda. And they try to stick on that. And they I think they there are a number of them. I, I do think they think the press has treated him unfairly. I think they really do. I think they think the press is out to get him. And people are out to make reputations, breaking stories on Trump. I do think there are a number who also are concerned about the institutions when Trump goes after FBI officials like he did Andrew McCabe. I mean, I think that is something that uh, upsets a lot of members. They see that as something that could happen with the Dem- – what if a Democratic president mm-hmm. did that? You know, So I do think in the Democrats, on the other hand, they think it's a double standard. They think you know Republicans would have impeached Obama if he did a, a fraction of the stuff that Trump has done. 
I, you know, I think he just, I mean, he's still, listen, a year into office, Trump and presidents do, but Trump dominates in the politics in a way that no president in my lifetime has, except no, maybe, and, maybe and not Clinton. Just politics, yeah. But it, it, to me, it's that it's just everything. It's sports, culture, entertainment. Everything is about uh, Donald Trump or the reaction to Donald Trump at this or, point. Or what Trump stands for. It's just clearly there's a cultural clash going on and he is the uh, – on, on that yes. side, he's the, he's the guy who represents do, it. Do Republicans worry in a real way about losing the House? Oh, yeah. I think they should. And they should. I mean, just traditionally, the the first midterm for any president in his first term is a tough election. Look what happened to Obama in 2010. Uh, I think they, they see retirements. They've seen, you know, dozens of retirements. You see a lot of committee chairmen retiring. But I still think they feel, the Republicans, that there are not enough seats in play. They, they think they'll lose seats, but maybe they can contain the losses. They think the economy is good. They think that, you know, that will help them, which is versus where things were in 2010 when, when the economy was, still, when was right. yeah they were still reeling and that was in an activist Congress had done a lot mm-hmm. but the Congress you know the unemployment was 10 percent but I think they they're worried about it I don't think they're panicking yet you know if you're, we see more retirements uh, you know in swing districts I think they'll panic will set in and then you could see a flood. That's John Bresnahan. Follow him on Twitter at BresPolitico and read everything that he writes so you can understand what's happening on Capitol Hill and the ins and outs of Congress. And now, my conversation with Steve Stivers. So why don't we start with this? Walk me through the theory of how you guys are okay and the House stays in Republican control. Sure. So uh, I think it starts with uh, the congressional lines. After redistricting in 2011, uh, a lot of districts were shorn up substantially, uh, and that makes a difference. Uh, it doesn't change your number of your majority, but it changes the composition of each district and and gets people a little bit more comfortable. Number two, we have members in the toughest districts that are battle-hardened, that are used to this and see it coming, and there's no way that they will get you know all wiped out. They might take one or two of them down, a few of them down, but they're not going to be able to wipe them all out because these folks like John Katko and Carlos Curbelo and Will Hurd and Barbara Comstock have independent identities with the voters uh, in all four of those districts. They're four of the 23 folks in districts that Hillary Clinton happened to win. But in the, each case, the 23 that, 23 that Republican Clinton, held, that Republican Hillary, held right. Hillary Clinton wins uh, 23 seats. Those are four examples. They each won uh, by double digits in a case where the presidential race went the other way, sometimes by almost double digits. Yeah. So um, they have an independent profile and a relationship with their voters that is based on things they are doing where their voters can name what they're doing for them. These are our best members that know what they're doing, understand their voters, understand what their voters want. And that's another reason. The other thing I think that makes a difference is we have the resources. You know, we still have more money and cash on hand than the DCCC. And I think most people assume that the outside money will favor Republicans. Well, if you look at the things I know, House Majority Pack versus CLF, hmm. the difference was stark yeah. in 2017. And that's just and, one outside group. And that's one outside group. Uh, the other thing that I think matters is our agenda is starting to make a difference for people 
in 2017, two and a half million jobs created, $7.8 trillion of wealth created for anybody that has a 401k or ownership in the stock market, unemployment at near record lows and at near record lows for important subgroups like African-Americans and Hispanic voters. The opportunities are massive. And frankly, since tax reform, two million people have gotten a bonus from their employer that their employer said is as a result of tax reform. And economic growth in December was almost 4%. These are things that when you line them all up, I think are going to start to make a difference. We're already starting to see some improvement in the generic ballot, and we'll see whether that uh, remains uh, and continues to get a little better. But I feel pretty comfortable that because of the lines, the money, the candidates, so everybody just profiles. being crazy. The thing. No, I don't think. I mean, uh, do I think the that history and some of the dynamics that we saw in? I'm not denying what happened in New Jersey and Virginia. They happened. Yeah. Those things happened, but. What some Democrats are denying and Nancy Pelosi and Ben Ray Lujan are that we've had five test shows already, five special Although elections, they would and argue we're five that those, and oh in special elections. They would argue that those were in Republican districts and that the thing that mattered was the enthusiasm there and that you saw more voters turning out for Democrats and that that was a predictor of what happened in Virginia and what happened in a way in Alabama, although that was its own, Alabama's its right. own special case. Uh, but but in, and, and, and that that makes them feel good going into. And, and there, there's no denying that Democrats are excited. But what we proved in Georgia six, a district, the president only won by one point. So this is not some right. It was almost wild. It was almost the on that list of the, it, the Clinton. It, districts. So that, it would have been on the list. It was that close. It was the president won it by one point. But we won it with Karen Handel by three and a half points, 3.6 points yeah. technically, while she got outspent by $20 million. Right. You know, this is a race that could have gone either way, Yeah, almost went the other way in the presidential. And we turned our, the Democrat voters absolutely turned out. But the difference was we turned our voters out too. And our modeling and our data was good enough in the other seats. Uh, you know, I don't work to cover a spread or make sure I meet an index. I make sure we win. Right. So when Ralph Norman looked like he was up by five or so, he ended up winning by three. Um, we didn't have to spend any money there. Right. Good for us. It, a win's a win, whether he wins by three or five. But, you know, again, yeah, okay. I'm not yeah. I'm not playing Vegas. I'm playing <laughs> to win seats. Uh, so I feel I feel pretty good about where we are. Clearly, Democrat voters are excited, but we have a lot of things on our side. Uh, and the growing economy is going to get to be a bigger and bigger deal on our side. And we can contrast that against Nancy Pelosi's economy that the American people had to live through for six years that involved no pay raises. It involved no new job opportunities. It involved a stock market that was stagnant. It was a stagnant economy. We've talked about people this don't before. Want to go back you to think that. Do you think Pelosi still resonates in people's minds? Um, I think she is one factor uh, that I mean, resonates. She hasn't been speaker has since 2010. Very, people know what they think about Nancy Pelosi. And some of the intensity has waned mm -hmm. slightly. But as the spotlight hits again, just like the people knew what they thought about Hillary Clinton and as the spotlight hit her again, you remember when she was Secretary of State, her negatives kind of went down well, I mean, it was, because this, she was right, out of the it was spotlight. This interesting thing that happened with Clinton, not only Secretary of State, but before that, when, when she would be running, people would not like her. And then she would be in office and people, their impressions of her improved. You can say that that's because they liked the job she was doing or they just forgot about what their issues were. And then she would run for something again and they would go down again. It was throughout her career. As the spotlight has hit Nancy Pelosi, the spotlight has 
lit up her policies, yeah. radical left policies that turn off many mainstream voters in districts we need to win or hold. These are districts that are, you know, marginally Republican, marginally Democratic. They don't want somebody on the far left. Yeah. They don't want somebody on the far right. Our candidates in these districts are mainstream candidates. So um, so I think Pelosi can work in those districts. And we showed that in Georgia six. I just want your three points on why you feel good. Number one was the district lines. So that would seem to validate what a lot of Democrats say, which is that the gerrymandering has been toward Republican advantage here. Is that right? Well, the other thing is we have more state House members in the House and Senate of the 50 states than we've had in the history of the Republican Party. Also, so this though, is not gerrymandering. Though, eh, right? You can you could say that, but the, the people elected them. Sure. And they had to get there in the first place. Democrats sure didn't draw the lines for them. So um, we have a bigger, deeper bench than we've ever had. I think that uh, our members can win in tough districts. And we've proven that and they are winning in tough districts. But it is true that we have some districts that are a little safer over time. And the second point you made was about people being battle tested and yes. pardoned. Uh, on the Senate side, the Democrats are facing this because they have people representing states who are also battle tested. But one of the arguments that your fellow Republicans are making is that you need new people in fresh blood. You're making the argument that battle tested is a good thing here and that fresh blood is. Well, but some of these people are, are fresh blood that happen to be battle tested. Barbara Comstock, you know, has only right. been here a short time. John Katko has been here a short time. Carlos Cabello has been here a short time. I mean, you do have to figure out where the bathroom is and how to pass a bill. Right. And then point three was you feel like the record is coming through. Um, I do. And I mean, I wonder we are three, four weeks forward from the tax bill passing. We have yet to see any real effort from the White House to make people see that tax bill for what they want it to be seen as. Uh, I remember as it was passing, I can't remember, it was right before the House vote or the Senate vote, Stephen Moore, the economist who's been advising the White House, said, well, the only reason why it's unpopular is because the Democrats have done such a good job saying that it's terrible. And that's why it's at 25%. Whatever you want to say, it's at 25% or 30%. Nancy Pelosi called it Armageddon because it's Armageddon for the Democratic <laughs> Party, though. She, It's bad for you, her. It's bad you, politics for her. Make people believe that because they're not we, believing well, it. Well, they are believing it. We just had a battleground poll come back and it's very positive. Mm -hmm. uh, it's already right side up and growing. Two million people have gotten bonuses as a result of the tax bill. So the talking heads on the cable channels mm -hmm. say one thing, but when you read your local newspaper in Columbus, Ohio, and it says nationwide insurance pays a thousand dollar bonus to every non-management employee and you read another page and it says fifth third bank pays a thousand dollar bonus to every non-management employee and you read another page and it talks about other companies that are doing the same thing people are understanding what's happening here and they haven't even seen an increase in their paychecks yet that they're going to see in february and march when they see an increase in their paychecks in february and march they're going to know they were lied to by Nancy Pelosi. Could the White House be more helpful here? I, I think the the withholding tables are now changing and uh, things are happening. It takes time to make that stuff happen. And so, uh, you know, and we want to get it right. And so I'm OK with taking the time it takes. But I think we need to keep communicating with people about what tax reform means to them individually. And we're going to keep telling them, check your paycheck. Is it more or less than it was before? Look at the stock market. Is it more or less than it was before? Look at the help wanted ads in your local newspaper. Are there more or less when there were before? 
Is this bringing opportunity to you and your family? And I feel comfortable that like when Ronald Reagan asked it, are you better off than you were before we did this? The answer is going to be yes. For you, it'll be, are you better off than you were two years ago? That's right. Well, <laughs> it, it, even a year ago, because we didn't, took us a little while to pass it. But yeah. And that's the argument. You you were just at the leadership uh, retreat, right? With uh, your fellow Republican leaders. That's, that's how you guys are going to approach well, I it. I think our theme is going to be about the great American comeback. The Great American Comeback includes what we did to right-size regulation, what we did to make the tax code more competitive, what we're about to do to help training and workforce development to make sure people have the skills mm -hmm. for jobs that are here today and here tomorrow. It's about having people move from welfare to work. It's about making sure that we pass an infrastructure bill that improves our infrastructure and does it by leveraging private dollars and some public dollars. There are a whole host of things that we can do. It's about prison reform so that opportunity isn't just for people that haven't maybe made a mistake. Let's get those, get the training to these people when they're in a prison to learn a skill or a trade there too so that when they come out, one of the best predictors of whether somebody's going to reoffend is do they have a job and are they working? If they have a job and they're working, they're not going to reoffend. You listed off a, a bunch of battleground districts. Which are the ones that you think President Trump would be helpful to campaign in? Well, we proved in Georgia 6 that the president can campaign in districts that he barely won and make a difference for it to, for us to motivate the voters. But that, we need to get that, out. That's an 18-month difference between when that race happened and, and where things sure. are. And I think we'll, that we'll, we'll be by November. I, we will be able to use the president, and he's been very helpful. He's never said no to us. He's helped us whenever we've asked. We'll be able to use him in almost every district in America. You will put him out on the trail in every district. In we will be able to use him in almost every district in you America. You think he'll be helpful? And I think there, he will be helpful many, many places with voters in almost every district. There are chunks of voters that he can be helpful with. Is there any one of those districts already that you can point to and say that's the one? like that, that, Or that's one of the ones that you would... I think he's going to be helpful in Pennsylvania 18 in the next two months between now and March 13th. Although that is a a district that sure. right, is very much Republican. Sure. When you think the ones that you listed three of in Curbelo, Catco, Comstock, are any of those? You know, I think we need to be smart about how and where we use everybody, every surrogate, whether it's the president, vice president, you know, other members of Congress, other folks who are uh, want to help. Uh, and we will try to use people in smart places and uh, we will be we, we're not going to give our battle plans to everybody, but we're going to make sure we, we're smart about the way we use folks. Daryl Issa and Ed Royce, two senior members, uh, both from Southern California, announced they were retiring. What are you saying to the people who haven't made a decision yet? Are you saying it's time to let you know what's going on? I think uh, because of the filing deadlines coming, most people have made a decision. There's still a few stragglers maybe, but really we're talking about a handful of folks that are trying to maybe decide if they're running again. And but we're talking about a handful of folks that might end up deciding who the control of the house. <laughs> that, well, that's true. But even uh, of the- right, Because th those districts but are- Most of those are not competitive. So of the competitive districts, almost everybody has decided. You know, Daryl and, and Ed were two late deciders. And if you look at Ed Royce, term limited as- as chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, Daryl Issa was term limited last term mm -hmm. at uh, Oversight and Government Reform. And, uh, 
you know, they just decided it was time. But look at the recruits we they got immediately. They just decided that it was well, time. They knew it was going to be a really tough race, well, right? <laughs> but they, I don't think Ed Royce had – it had anything to do with the race. I really – Really? I believe Ed would have won. But I also believe that – I mean, Issa also said that he thought he would have won. And but, I think I and think he, would have won bigger than he won it, last time. It would have it would have been a hard race. And, and Issa's would have been a hard race. I was on one Ed's of the – Ed's would have been an expensive race. Yeah. But I think they both would have won. I was on one of the last uh, campaign swings that Obama did in 16 and it was – through La Jolla and he was uh, almost licking his lips thinking about Isa going down in that race. Uh, we had a fundraiser with uh, the guy who sure, was the Applegate. candidate against him. And, it didn't happen. Uh, it didn't happen. And, uh, and this time, young Kim, who is a Korean-American, young female candidate, attractive candidate, smart. Uh, she got in within 24 hours of Ed Royce getting out. Uh, Ed Royce immediately endorsed her. She is going to be a strong candidate for us, and she's a diverse candidate for us. In um, so who's in left? the ISIS seat? We have a couple of candidates that got in immediately, including a strong female candidate. Who 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 is left on the list of people that you want to know? Okay, is it going to happen or not? And what are you saying to those people to say you got to know? Right? You have well, you are the chair we, of the committee figuring out how to get everybody reelected in the house. So. We are having lots of conversations <laughs> with, and there's really uh, there's really only one person that's in a competitive seat that is still kind of weighing what they're going to do. And I think he's going to run. Who's that? I'm not going to say, but I think he's going to run. <laughs> what What's the case that you're making? Uh, that they are part of something here. They're making a difference for America. This is an opportunity to continue to make a difference. And there's always a chance to go. They can go whenever they want. But I hope they stay and help us keep America moving forward and, and help support the great American comeback, which uh, is a big deal. And it's not just the great American economic comeback. It includes making sure our military is strong and ready for the serious threats we have from Russia, North Korea, uh, ISIS, where we actually have turned the battle around against against ISIS. But we need our military ready. And and the great American comeback is is part of that. And it goes not just to November of 2018, it goes beyond 2018. And it's part of really getting those forgotten people back into society and giving them an opportunity to raise their family, make a difference in their lives. And that's what these people have a chance to continue to be a part of. And I hope they choose to. You're getting good already at threading the great American comeback just into your. It's, it's, <laughs> it, I love that. I love the narrative. It's and it, And you can contrast it against the other side that wants to, you know, bring back lower military budgets, hurt our national security, put us at risk of terrorism at home and, uh, you know, um, bad things abroad and wants to put our our uh, economy at risk and bring back stagnation through big government policies or more taxation or higher regulation that will stifle economic growth and hurt the opportunities of millions of Americans, uh, whether they're in, you know, Lancaster, Ohio, or whether they're in you know, Miami, Florida, or whether they're in, uh, um, in, you know, Northern Virginia, there's people all around this country who need opportunity again, and they want to feel hopeful again. They want to feel proud again. And uh, this is our chance to really make that happen. And we're working on it. Are you surprised the president's numbers haven't gone higher than where they are right now? I'm not surprised by anything anymore. <laughs> You seem like you were expecting that question from the way you were nodding your head. No, no. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure that question was coming, but I, you know, in I used to think I understood politics until the last two years. I mean, and and by the usual math, where his numbers are, which is in the low thirties, is problematic for 
the party in power on top of the historical trends and all of that. That is that's right. And I, I think that uh, the more important number, though, is the generic ballot. And while it's not good right now, we're starting to see some in- improvements in the generic ballot because I think people do make independent choices about uh, their member of Congress and what they want in Congress. And when they see it as part of a bigger narrative, I think it will help drive people our direction. We'll, we'll see how it goes. You talked about a couple of background people. Uh, I want to talk about Mike Kaufman. Sure. He's, uh, one of your colleagues from Colorado. He was in a tough race la- in uh, 2016, last time around. And one of the things that he did towards the very end of the election Again, in a moment when most people expected Hillary Clinton was going to win and Trump would not, he did an ad where he said, uh, honestly, I don't care for him much. It was he looked right at the camera and he tried to say, I'm different from that guy. I think what Mike Kaufman's constituents and voters appreciate about him is he's honest and he is who he is. But would you advise candidates to do that? To do I that advise kind of every candidate that? to represent your district. Mike Kaufman knows how to represent his district better than I would ever know how to do. And we're, look, he won. Right. Of course, he's just he's now targeted once again by Democrats. For the, the third time in a row, <laughs> and they haven't beat him the first two times. And and every time they uh, he goes through it, he gets stronger and better. Mike Kaufman is so strong. This is a guy who represented a suburban district. It got changed in uh, redistricting where he represents a Hispanic district now. He learned Spanish. He debated his opponent in Spanish. And he did it because he wants to serve his constituents. You talked about districts. You know, Democrats love to talk about districts that got more Republican. What they don't want to talk about are the districts that got more Democratic and we want them anyway, like Rod Blum did, like Mike Kaufman did. Right. We hear a and, lot about uh, the, the Hillary 24 districts, sure. or 23 districts, but there, there are also the Trump 12 districts, right, right that where he won, but a Democrat represents. Right. Um, and we'll be on offense in those districts. Four of those uh, have retired. Five of those have retirements. Uh, Nevada three, Nevada four, New Hampshire one, Minnesota one, and Kirsten Cinema Arizona nine. So <laughs> you got to keep all those numbers. Yeah, it's, uh, the numbers are hard for me. I know the names. But I usually can only do. I try to remember the, the names numbers, of people, because yeah. it, you know you learn them and then there's a redistricting and, and then they, they change, change completely. That's right. <laughs> so it's one thing when you have a candidate. And you're saying I'm different from the candidate. This is uh, the potential that we'd go into the fall with members of the House of Representatives, Republicans, potentially saying I want nothing to do with the president of the United States who's a Republican. That's okay. I don't think you'll see a lot of that. But if somebody believes that and that's what their district believes, that's up to them. But I don't think you'll see wholesale uh, versions of that. We are not going to advise people specifically to, to do that. What we're going to tell them to do is represent their district. And tell them not again, to they know that? how to they know how to represent their district. Uh, what I'm going to make sure people understand is that it's their job to represent the voters and constituents that they want to run to a, to be representative of. And if they understand their voters and understand their district, they'll know better than we will. We're not going to micromanage anybody's campaign from from here that they're going to run those campaigns in the states, in the districts. Is there a battleground district where you think that the opposite kind of strategy would be good? Uh, an ad that says, again, a battleground district. I love President Trump. I agree with him on stuff. I can't wait to work with him, given where he his numbers are, given where the political environment is. Uh, I think there are some. I think uh, 
you know, Rod Blum's district has some of that in Iowa. Uh, as you know, the president overperformed in the whole state of Iowa, but it, clearly in that district, even though it's a Democrat-leaning district, the president overperformed there. The same thing, uh, frankly, in Democrat districts like Matt Cartwright's in Pennsylvania. And uh, Cartwright's on the wrong side of guns for that district. He's frankly not involved enough in uh, the community mm -hmm. um, and isn't really close to folks. And I think you'll see that district get a lot closer. John Schrin's going to be an incredible challenger there. Uh, I also think in the Iron Range up in uh, Minnesota, you'll see uh, Pete Stauber, who's an incredible candidate, uh, do good things. And the president's very popular up there. And Rick Nolan was the youngest and the oldest member representing that district. <laughs> and I think uh, the voters may choose to retire him in 2018. Tell me about the conversations you've had with the president about the political environment. Uh, I, you know, with the president's been very, very helpful. Uh, every time we've asked him to help, he has agreed to help. Um, when we ask him, you know, to do things, he's very helpful. Uh, clearly, you know, the environment will change. It changes do you every think, day. Do you think he has an in-depth sense of what's going on? I think both the president and the people around him, um, understand the people of this country and understand especially a lot of people left behind mm -hmm. by a very um, focused government effort that resulted in picking winners and losers. And the folks who were picked as losers, whether they were in coal country, whether they were in manufacturing, whether they were in the industrial Midwest, they felt left behind. And in many of those states, there were big surprises, Pennsylvania, yep. Wisconsin, Michigan, um, you know, I actually am from Ohio and I thought the president was going to win Ohio and he did. I thought he was going to win Florida and he did. I thought he was going to win North Carolina and he did. I should have had I you on not, his staff because I they did didn't not think he was going to win all I didn't think he was going to win Wisconsin. I didn't think well, he was going to win. Nobody thought he was going to win Wisconsin. I didn't think he was going to win Michigan <laughs> and I didn't think he was going to win Pennsylvania. So, so, so that means that you thought so Hillary Clinton was going to win I, for all of it. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a, a close race, but I, I I didn't see him win in those three states. And yeah. It took one of those to win. But what are walk me through it. What are the kinds of questions that he's asking about this and just trying to get a sense of how he uh, approaches what um, I think everybody expects going to be a tough year for you guys. And and that's never fun to be in a tough environment. So it's more fun to be in a, an environment where you think you're going to well. I think well. everybody at the White House wants to help and they've uh, asked what they can do to help. And that's, Has he committed that's, to fundraising for you guys? Uh, he did the March dinner for us last year and he's committed to continue to help us. And I, but not, I think we will we will do that. I, I'm not going to comment on any, <laughs> any specific agreements he's agreed to, but he has agreed to help us in very specific ways in the near future. So there are specifics you're just yes, not going to tell me about. that's correct. <laughs> your, your colleague, Charlie Dent from Pennsylvania, who's retiring, who I guess you did not succeed in convincing to run again. Um, he, he didn't call me till after <laughs> he made his decision, to be very clear. He argued to me a couple of weeks ago that he thinks that the Republicans need to do a better job overall of not paying attention to the people who are never going to vote yes on things. What he said to me is you should look for the people who will vote who want to vote yes, not the ones who are looking to vote no. As a larger strategic point. Is that I think we have, just like any political party, uh, a tapestry of a bunch of different kinds of people in our party. And we need to cobble together 218 votes for every individual bill, including appropriations bills in the House. And we've done a pretty good job of that. I think Charlie's analysis is a little outdated because that is true in the Boehner era. And I was a close ally of John Boehner, a good friend of John Boehner. No, and Ohio uh, Republican, Ohio Republican <laughs> recruited me to run for Congress. And uh, 
And that was true in the Boehner era. And now, uh, especially with these continuing resolution votes twice, mm-hmm. we had the majority of every subgroup of our conference vote yes. The majority of the Tuesday group, the majority of the RSC, the majority of the Freedom Caucus voted yes for the CRs to keep the government open. So I think Charlie's analysis is a little outdated. You know, I'm not going to uh, dump on people that are about to vote yes for us. Do you worry about donors looking at the House races and say and, and falling into the thinking that the House is in in danger or lost and turning to Senate races? How do you get them to? I think the House is um, always in danger. Uh, that's why we run races, just like why they play football games. If you bet on the uh, air, on the uh, Minnesota uh, New Orleans game and you bet at the wrong time, it would have looked like uh, that game was going a different direction. Um, but it, you know, that's why we play the game. That's why we run the races. Um, people who will say, I, you know, it, that's not going to work out. We got to hold on to the Senate. Uh, difference is the Senate has very, very different rules. The House is what you need to hold on to first. Ideas come out of the House. It's a fact. Bills die in the Senate, whether Republicans are in control or Democrats are in control. When Republicans are in control, both ideas come out of the House, they go to the Senate, and then we move to the lowest common denominator of what we can get done, and that's the Senate's job. That's what our founding fathers put forward. Uh, But ideas come out of the House. The most important of the two bodies to hold, if you're only going to hold one, is the House. Now, I prefer to hold both, but uh, if you're only going to hold one, why wouldn't you hold the one where the ideas come from? You 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 have a a life where you have to wake up every morning and read the news about oh my god there's going to be a wave oh the Republicans are in trouble. So walk me through what that's like. That must be frustrating. You know, I I don't let I that's, know that I've you never are, let you that stuff optimist. get to me. I'm I'm by nature an optimist, but I'm also been a soldier for 32 years, deployed to Operation Iraqi Freedom. Once you've been through that and you've actually uh, been in the middle of a combat zone, I wasn't in combat, but I was in a combat zone. And in any given day, you know, living under a uncertainty, uh, I'm pretty good at well, that. Yes. I can handle L- that. Losing losing an election is is not, <laughs> is not the. I've lost an election and I'm still here, so it's it all works. Uh, so but, I don't but people, really. People have told me that you you are range sometimes from frustrated to being a little panicked to being annoyed to you know all these no, things that are no, like I, natural I, emotions to I, have. I. Uh, Do I sometimes get annoyed by people saying we're going to lose the house? I just want people to have me on in November after we hold the house and tell them how great I am. (laughs) I mean, because like part of the issue here is that like if it's a wave, if there are larger dynamics at play, it's a crazy situation where you could do everything you're supposed to do as NRCC chairman correctly and it still won't matter. And You'll still be blamed for it. Life is life is not always fair. I've lived with that my whole life, and I'm very comfortable with the fact that life isn't fair, and I do the best I can every day, and I'll put our actions and our record up against anybody, but I know I'm ultimately going to be judged by our performance. That's why I'm working hard every day to maintain this majority, and I think we're going to. We'll see what happens. The Democrats are abuzz, a lot of them, with talk about impeachment. And many of their party leaders are trying to tamp that down. They think it's not a good strategy. Do you think it's a good strategy for Republicans to talk about being the way of stopping impeachment from happening? Well, you know, the thing about an impeachment and impeachment process is there needs to be something that is an impeachable offense. Sure. And 
uh, if people want or something that can be turned into an impeachable offense, want to impeach the president or anybody, there has to be an impeachable offense. And and I think most voters in battleground districts don't think that just because you disagree with your opponent, you should impeach them. There has to be something more there or just because you let's say you don't like somebody. We're going to impeach you because we don't like you or you say these outrageous things. We're going to impeach you. You know, the Constitution is clear what the standard is for impeachment. And it's, you know, crimes and misdemeanors. And there are, I don't think, any impeachable offenses. I think it'll be but interesting think, to see what the Republicans should say. Hey, we're going to like, this is not a good idea. There's not anything there. Uh, I, I think, and, and we will stop. The, part of why it's important to elect Republicans is to stop Democrats from going down this path. I think Democrats are overreaching if they think impeachment is going to help them. I think it's going to net hurt them with college educated voters that understand uh, what impeachment is. Uh, and frankly, that's a group we're both going to be fighting over no, in this and election. Like we're into a so very weird place where impeachment is being tossed around like any other political impeachment's act, being right? tossed around. The it's other the thing, removal of a president from office, which now, is maybe people think, OK, that is something that Donald Trump deserves. But whatever, if you think that, you better think about it in terms of how serious that is. It's and what that just, means. Right. Exactly. And that's that's the other thing that I think voters want people here to do is think through and do their job, not have knee jerk political reactions. And I think in the end, this overreaction they're doing on that, what their what their party's doing on uh, government takeover of health care um, will ultimately backfire. We'll see what happens. Let, let's just talk a little Ohio politics for a second here. Um, do you feel like that Senate race, uh, Sherrod Brown is running for reelection in this environment that uh, you are very familiar with? Does he have a, a shot at getting reelected, you think? Uh, Sherrod Brown is a very skilled retail politician, but I can tell you Sherrod Brown has been in elected federal office long enough to get a pension. Battle-tested. He is (laughs) battle-tested, but he's been there for uh, long enough to get a government pension, and I think the voters of Ohio just might give it to him this year. (laughs) Uh, What do you think is going on with John Kasich, your governor? Uh, Is he going to run for president against Donald Trump? I don't know what. The governor will do. Uh, I supported uh, Governor Kasich in the past. I, he's a friend. I like him. I think he's been a good governor. And, uh, you know, he certainly is an independent minded guy. But uh, I can't tell you what he's going to do in the future. It'll be interesting to watch. I think we'll, we'll all watch uh, with anticipation. Has it been helpful what he's, for, for Republicans that he is now? Uh, it, it is just so reliable that whenever anything comes up that there is an issue with President Trump, you see John Kasich talking to a reporter on TV, whatever it'll be, uh, leading Republican criticism to him. What does that mean for the party? You know, John Kasich does what he thinks is right, but it's it's not always helpful to the party, but it's, you know, he's his own man and he gets to decide what he wants to do. And, um, you know, I, I don't... I would never uh, question John Kasich's integrity. He means what he says or he wouldn't say it. But, um, you know, sometimes uh, there are things that he says that I wish he wouldn't say. Does President Trump make you proud to be a Republican? Uh, I'm proud to be a Republican every day, no matter what. I uh, believe in the principles of the Republican Party. I believe in limited government. I believe in personal freedoms. I believe in uh, uh, lower taxation. 
and I believe in free markets. And that's what made me a Republican. And, uh, you know, I uh, am proud to be a Republican uh, because of what the party stands for and because of what it means to me and, and what it can do to change lives and and help people. And I've seen it work and uh, I'm proud to be part of it. And I always will be. Is any of that affected by the president? I try to focus on what I do and what I believe. And, I, you know, it's I'm, I didn't come to the party for because some other person was a Republican. I came to the party because of what the party stood for. And uh, I'm I'm that's why I'm still a Republican. All right. Let's leave it there. Thank you. Steve Stivers. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much. He's got a complicated job. Mix of determined optimism and cold calculation can strike people sometimes as compensation for panic or straight up denial, or he'll turn out to be right. Thanks as always to Zach Stanton for producing and for John Bresnahan for helping sort things out up top. Remember to subscribe and rate us. You're not going to want to miss that conversation with Joe Kennedy, fresh off his State of the Union response on what the future holds for the Democratic Party and for him. Or another great one coming up with Keisha Lance Bottoms, the new mayor of Atlanta, on her race in a surprisingly divided city last year and what it tells her about the future of democratic politics in Georgia and the rest of the South. Catch you next time on Off Message.